Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Tara Brock. Tara Brock is a beloved meditation teacher who's been practicing and teaching meditation since 1975. She has a PhD in clinical psychology, is the founder of the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, D.C., and is the author of Radical Acceptance, Radical Compassion, True Refuge, and a new book, What Sounds True, called Trusting the Gold. Tara's weekly podcasts of talks and meditations are downloaded more than 3 million times each month. And I can tell you, that's a lot of downloads for a podcast for talks and meditations. Tara Brock has also partnered with Sounds True and Jack Cornfield to create the Awareness Training Institute. Through the Awareness Training Institute, Tara and Jack offer a seven-week online mindfulness training called The Power of Awareness, and they also teach a two-year online training program for people who graduate from the power of awareness and want to move on and become mindfulness meditation teachers. It's called the Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program. And you can learn more about the Awareness Training Institute and Tara Brock's new book, Trusting the Gold, at SoundsTrue.com. In this conversation with Tara, we get right into it. What is the trance of unworthiness? How do we work with our most difficult emotions, those feelings of shame, that sense of being unlovable, as a gateway, Tara calls it a portal, to actually discover what in us is gold, what in us is beautiful and pure and loving and kind. Here's our conversation on trusting the gold. Tara, I'm so uh, happy and honored to have this chance to talk to you about your new book, Trusting the Gold, Uncovering Your Natural Goodness. It's a collection of some of your favorite stories and quotes that you refer to in your teachings and talks. And I wanted to start off by talking about the title, Trusting the Gold. I know there's a story that goes along with the title. Let's start there. Yeah, it's a story that actually I tell a lot because it 
has had such an imprint on me. And uh, so in Thailand, uh, for centuries, there was this enormous clay Buddha statue that wasn't particularly attractive, but but just people loved it for its staying power through the centuries. So six centuries, actually. So in recent years, and I think it was in the late 50s, the statue started to crack because of this extended drought. And one enterprising monk shined a light in through the cracks of the plaster clay. And and what gleamed back was gold, this shine of gold. And they undid what turned out to be just coverings. And so it was this largest solid gold statue of the Buddha in South East Asia, and people come from all over now to look at it. Um, but here's what what's so interesting to me, is that the monks believe, and historians actually confirm this, that this that the Buddha was covered over with plaster and clay to protect it from invading armies, protect it from you know, being stolen or destroyed, desecrated, much in the same way that we humans cover over our innate purity to try to get by. You know, we live in in difficult environments for many, many reasons. And so we take on our defenses and our aggressions, our way of proving ourselves and and just navigating with ego. And we forget who's really there. And that's where the suffering is. It's not that we have coverings, it's part of the natural way that we develop defenses and so on, but it's that we forget the gold. Uh, We forget the love and the awareness that's intrinsic. We forget who's looking through the mask. And so I think of this as kind of captures, in a way, the whole path of waking up. It's that we're waking up to remember and realize and trust the gold and then include the coverings with a very healing kind of compassion. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, this notion of including the coverings. I think a a lot of times we want to get rid of what we see as those coverings, those parts of ourselves that we don't like very much that seem in the way of our pure essence. That seems like a, a different turn. It is a different turn because the idea is that we need some coverings, you know, it's just not being identified with them. So that if we're present and kind towards them, let's say I feel like I'm being aggressive or judgmental and I'm present and kind towards that, it becomes more porous. So I can still remember who I am and then sense, okay, well, what degree of assertiveness is needed? So we're not trying to get rid of as much as come into a wise relationship with. Okay. Well, Tara, let's talk directly to that person who says, the part of me that feels just unlovable, unworthy, you you teach and write about the trance of unworthiness. Someone who right now listening to this feels they're in a trance of unworthiness. They don't identify with that being a covering. They're like, you know, I am not worthy. That's how it is. How do they move to a place of experiencing that as a a covering and not actually uh, the reality of the situation? Yeah, and that is the suffering of it. What I call the trance of unworthiness is that we believe and feel in our bodies something's wrong, that something's wrong with me, like an intrinsic sense of being flawed. So the pathway is training our attention. And that's, you know, why 
put so much emphasis on mindfulness. Mindfulness means that in the moment you're aware of the beliefs and feelings going on, that more of you is inhabiting the awareness and is not so caught in the wave. You know, you're, you're the ocean and you're not so caught in it. So the more we become mindful of the patterns and the more we become kindly towards them, the more we rest in something larger and start trusting that's more the truth of who we are than the waves. And, and I use ocean waves a lot, Tammy, because every metaphor is very imperfect, but I think we can almost get an embodied sense of the more whole we feel, the more we're inhabiting a fullness of awareness, the more we can see the passing nature of, okay, so this is a flaring up of, of addictive tendency, or this is a flaring up of being judgmental, or this is a flaring up of, of fear, and not feel like it defines us. So that's, that's where the shift comes in, learning really to offer mindfulness and compassion to the changing waves. Mm -hmm. Now, we each might identify our own way of how we fall into the trance of unworthiness. Do you think it's important to understand what the sort of early experiences are, what happened in the first few years of our life that created this, you know, you said these coverings are natural. Do you think we need to understand, like do that investigative archaeological work to know how this occurred, how this you know, continual vulnerability to this type of wave pattern occurred? Or is that not really, you don't really need to know the why. There's a certain amount of understanding both how we got messaged in our early life, how we got treated, because we end up telling ourselves what others told us and we end up treating ourselves like others treat us. There's a certain value to that, but I'll even go beyond that. There's a certain value to sensing how things get passed through the generations, how the way we are is shaped by other generations. Uh, there's a real value to sensing how society is shaping our behaviors, our attitudes. You know, it's, I love the saying that we're not thinking our own thoughts, we're thinking society's thoughts. And the reason that that kind of understanding um, is part of being freer is it helps us to get it's not our fault. You know, it, it, that, this, that the suffering or the way, the things we don't like got shaped by uh, forces that are outside of who we are. And when we can see that, when we can see how past generations were traumatized, when we can see how uh, society is just absolutely fueling overconsumption or fueling uh, ideas of how bodies should be, and then we realize we're hating our bodies because we were programmed to hate our bodies. I name that one because it was really helpful for me. You know, I had for probably since my late teens, a dis an eating disorder and a sense of body dysmorphia and uh, self-aversion for my body that I struggled with over a decade and a half. And it was very much a part of the, a culture that says women should have this kind of a body. And if we don't match what the culture says, then we end up hating ourselves. So 
So yeah, I think getting the societal impacts or what our caregivers did past generations all helps us to not take it as personally. It's not an intrinsic flaw. It's part of the conditioning. And if it's conditioning, we can alter that conditioning and how we treat ourselves. Would you be willing, Tara, to share more from your own? Let's go ahead with the multi-generational inherited conditioning that you've really had to work with in your life and that journey for you. Sure, I'm, I'm glad to. Um, so I was very close with my mother growing up. I was the first, first child and she was alcoholic and she was depressed. And uh, her mother was very depressed. And I don't know about the addictions in past generations, but that was the case. And I couldn't save her. Like I couldn't make her better. And so I ended up feeling this sense of powerlessness to help, letting somebody else down, something's wrong with me for not making her feel better, um, which carries over. It's a, a tendency that, you know, this real pain and disappointing others. She, by the grace of AA and other factors, actually pulled out and, um, tremendous amount of feeling, but that wasn't, that was after I left to college. So that was one piece. And then my father, civil rights attorney, uh, kind of a passionate do-gooder, idealistic. And the message there was, uh, make a difference, contribute. And I grew up feeling like never enough. It's like, it didn't matter what I did, especially to do with the suffering around us. Um, it needed to be more because he was so one-pointed, you know. So that's just an example of how the messages got implanted in me and, you know, just created a real deep sense of deficiency. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to I talk specifically about that not-enoughness. And I want to talk about that because it's something um, I know well, and also I know it and I see it in many of my friends. And there's this sense that uh, at the nervous system level, like deep down in us, there's this, you can't really rest. You can't really trust the gold completely and relax. You always have to have somehow this sense of like, there's some hill I have to climb, some something I have to do, whether it's for my own sort of just, I, it's just like, it feels so deep in, as I said, in our nervous system. And I'm, I'm curious how you've been able to break through that into more of a, if you have, into a feeling of real restfulness. Yeah, I, I love the word enoughness or all rightness um, because it is um, a space outside of that conditioning. It feels to me to be society-wide, it's kind of almost, there's capitalism that always requires growing and accumulating more. And it, it feels very much like a part of a grasping culture that we always have to be more and do more and produce more to be okay. And then of course, some of us grew up in families where the, the caregivers, the messenger, our, our caregivers really, directly linked it with the kind of um, response we'd get, whether we were lovable or whether we were respectable. So, so, so many of us have our basic worth linked 
to our external doings. Uh, and enough meaning uh, it could be in the spiritual way, kind enough, or it could be, you know, having done enough for the world, or it could be the more materialistic, you know, accumulated enough, or look good enough, or have the enough of an intelligence. But we have all these standards that we're always measuring against. It, and it's, it's exhausting. I mean, it's really exhausting that not, not enough because it keeps on fueling the stress that makes us have to do more. So we get identified as a human doing, as they say, not a being. And then in your own experience, breaking this pattern uh, that we both, for many of us, inherited from our families, or it was our coping strategy uh, in our families to get love, and then also the cultural interject. But let's move out of it, Tara. I'm on for that. Cheers. <laughs> yeah, well, I I watched it for a lot of years. I mean, because as you say, it's very embodied. It's in the body in a painful way. And I would see how I would do things and I would do the things that looked like it would make me enough. Let's say I would teach a workshop and people would light up and I'd see a lot of transformation. I'd come home and a couple of minutes later, I'd be looking at my to-do list because I had to keep on fueling that I was enough with the next thing I would do. And just literally, the glow would last for a few minutes of enoughness. So it was very uh, hitched and temporary. I remember one of those times uh, coming back and, and then meditating and, and asking myself, okay, so what would be enough? And I let my imagination really go wild with how much I would contribute and do and help people and how kind and patient I feel, the whole thing. And I realized none of the externals uh, would actually leave me feeling enough because I'd still have the next day that I'd have to go do it again in some way. That enoughness didn't have to do with that. It really had to do with the quality of here now presence that right in, in this moment, there can be a sense of wholehearted, really fully right here, um, really engaged with what's right here. Um, in these moments, it's, there's a wholeness, there's, a, um, there's enough. And it doesn't mean not to do the good things, it just means to rest our roots of sensing goodness in the presence that's here not in any of the doings. And this word gold, trusting the gold, is it fair to say that a, another way to talk about this gold, because you, you told the, the story of the gold Buddha statue, but it is this here now presence that that's what we're coming into to trust, that's the gold? I, I'm asking, is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, the gold... I would describe the goal, I mean, the Buddhists would say it's Buddha nature, true nature. The goal is the fundamental or primordial awareness, the, the basic awareness that's here, and it has flavors and it expresses in, in kind of multi, like a gem, like multifaceted, that the goal gets expressed as gratitude, uh, the goal gets expressed as love or as compassion, or as wisdom. So there are different expressions, and each of our body minds kind of have different ways of expressing that basic presence. I'd say the most fundamental expression would be love. So that's the gold, yeah. 
Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you more about this word trusting also, because I think for a lot of people like, yeah, you know, trust the compassion, the love, the kindness, and then get screwed over, something like that. Trusting is not necessarily um, something that for some of us, we feel has worked out so great. I'm curious what you might say about that. So let's say our intention is trusting the goodness or the gold in ourselves and each other. And then in some way, we're not paying attention to how that person's patterning might just really injure us. And so clearly, that's not what it means. Um, in fact, you know, I think often about, I had this uh, supervisor when I was, get, when I was uh, getting licensed as a psychologist, who's the consummate therapist, I mean, just beautiful. And he had this capacity to see the gold and mirror it back. Like he really let people know he saw their light, their spirit, their goodness in its particular expressions. And people would, in that way, be very undefended with him. And then they could ally together to look at how the coverings were creating pain and harm for themselves or others. Um, and he was extraordinarily astute at seeing the coverings. So it wasn't like seeing the gold blocked him from recognizing the different patterns that we have that get us in trouble. It actually made it possible for him to be with others, and I'm assuming himself, and, and bring that healing presence to the coverings that actually allows the coverings to transform. So I hope that gives a sense of it, because mm -hmm. it's not, it's not a, a blind, naive thing. It's, it's all inclusive. Mm -hmm. In Trusting the Gold, you write about this power of seeing, uh, you call it the secret beauty in people, our secret beauty. What's your inner posture that enables you to be able to do that? Yeah. Um, and it is a practice because I think so often of the negativity bias, it has us fixate sure. on the coverings. So yeah. So what I'll do, whether sometimes I'm with the person, sometimes I'm not, is know that's an intention to see who's there. Some part of me is kind of asking questions like, who are you really? And what do you really care about? What really matters to your heart? You know, what do you, what do you long for? What do you love? So I'm, I'm kind of, I have a kind of inquiry about who that person really is. And, and in a deep way, you know, what is that that's looking back at me through those eyes, just really sensing it's the same sentence as I look at you. It's the same awareness filtered through all sorts of different conditionings. And so that really helps me. But it's an act of inquiry, Tammy, that, that I actually have to have in my mind to explore. And then another level of it is, as I see that, that goodness, is there a way for me to let this person know? I mean, that's part of it, is it's active loving, that I see the goodness and I mirror it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful practice, I think, for any of us. There's a trick I also use that also, when, I'm in, when I can see is I'll sometimes look and ask myself, what's the color of this person's eyes? Because as we know, you know, the, the, whether we believe it, the eyes are the window of the soul, there's something about looking attentively at another person's eyes that 
I feel like it, it kind of is a springboard into feeling the sentience that's there. Mm-hmm. Now, Tara, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about you, if that's okay, and your own uh, formation. It was interesting to hear more about your family. And then I've read that you joined an ashram for quite a, a long period in your life. And I'm curious to know more about that. What was the inspiration to live in an ashram? And then why did you leave? I joined because I was becoming more and more aware that there was a larger reality, a larger truth than the cocoon of thoughts and beliefs and so on I was in. And and that was, I mean, I started realizing that the more I'd be in nature, the more I'd do yoga, psychedelics helped to kind of shake loose some of the moorings. So part of it was just this, um, that's always been with me, this inquiry, like what is true? And uh, and part of it is this longing for communion, for love. They go hand in hand. Um, letting go of the separateness and and real and it and I and I found it as I got tastes of ashram life before I moved in and the chanting, the yoga, the meditation, living in community. So I was drawn. So it's really loving truth, loving love, and I'm my personality type is throwing myself in. So, you know, it's whenever, when I taste something that has some magic to it, I I really go for it. So I I joined, and as it turns out, the kind of ashram I joined was very, very vigorous. You know, we'd get up at 3.30 in the morning and do two and a half hours of sadhana, of spiritual practice, and work all day at the family businesses and, you know, do some more meditation and then start all over. <laughs> and it was very idealistic, you know, the sense of we were serving the world, that that really resonated. And the intensity did arouse a lot of beautiful altered states. I mean, I learned how to concentrate and get really, really still and feeling, you know, a kind of peace and bliss and uh, love and harmony. So it, it it really worked on that level. And it, it was also perfect for a type A personality in that it had, it also had a kind of rigidity. And that ended up the shadow of it, Tammy, is what, you know, of course, why I left, which is that it was very hierarchical. It's patriarchal, you know, is very perfectionistic, like we we're really trying to perfection perfect ourselves, which played right into my trance of unworthiness because I could never be enough. And that atmosphere allowed for abuse. It allowed for abuse. Um, It happened to me. I was abused emotionally. It happened to others. I witnessed it. The national leader um, was was an abusive personality type. He he hurt people. And so between that, sexual abuse of young women, criminal activity, uh, that was a strong shadow and I left. But I, I did get, and it was hard by the way, you know, to leave 10 years and this was my family. And um, I did get a lot in, in training my heart and mind in certain ways, um, but it was, it was a harmful container after a while very clearly. Mm-hmm. You know, as someone uh, myself who uh, trained in a type A meditation training environment for over a decade, 
after leaving that community, there are times when I wonder, am I serious about my spiritual journey or am I now like all into the letting go relaxation path of trusting the beauty of this moment? I don't have the kind of rigor I had when I was training. And then another part of me says, well, good, you're, you're taking a more feminine balanced approach. But then I wonder, like, am I just basically, am I lazy? So I'm, I'm curious what your view is of that and how we find that balance as people who perhaps tend towards type A type, you know, go, go, go. Yeah, uh, same. I mean, I've, I've often wondered, am I still playing my edge? Am I giving myself as much? Is there something I'm not seeing? And when that comes up, it brings me to say, well, what's my deepest intention and longing? And if I ask that, like in any given moment, I can feel it just as I name it. Um, I come back to really loving love and loving truth and trusting that love. And it's almost like I'm not trusting that the ego is going to keep her edge and wake up. I'm trusting that awareness wants to wake up to itself. Awareness wants to be free to love fully. Awareness wants to rest in, in, its, in its own wholeness. And I really do think of it that way. And so, it, I actually deepen my trust in that, that it's really okay. Mm -hmm. Tara, I think sometimes people might think of you as Tara, oh, Tara's the meditation teacher who specializes in helping us deal with really difficult emotions. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Like, do you think that, oh yeah, that did kind of become part of my specialty? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think that's the kind of leading niche, so to speak, because on my own path, um, I had to spend a lot of time working with difficult emotions and finding that the more difficult they were, you know, the, the shame, like the sense of fundamental flawedness, our fear, I mean, the more difficult the more they became this real portal to freedom. So I, I moved through that path, I have moved through and I continue to that pathway so many times that every time I would be with difficult waves, I'd rediscover in a deeper way the oceanness, the, the vastness, the impersonality, the tenderness of awareness. That it, that it became part of my passion to explore all the nuances of that with others. But it doesn't seem to leave out much when I, the, the, more, the more I kind of feel what it includes because for people that really go into it, opening to the waves that are difficult actually uh, ends up revealing what's sometimes called non-identification, that it's really empty. So there's a very deep wisdom that wakes up and it's filled with caring. So it's got the whole, everything that I love about it, the truth and the wisdom and the loving and the communion's all there. Mm -hmm. Let, let's see if we can make it really real for someone, this idea of something like shame, which doesn't feel like a portal, I think, to many of us. It feels like, you know, a terrible dead end 
we're on, you know, uh, spinning around in a in a shame cycle. How could shame be a portal? And maybe you could share from a, a personal vantage point how shame was a portal for you in some sense and what that was like to pass through. Sure, gladly. And I, I've, there's been 10,000 uh, rounds of it, so it's a very familiar pathway. <laughs> and um, although shame doesn't appear that much anymore, I remember um, when I got sick, and this was in my early 50s, um, and I spent four or five years pretty sick. It was a spiral down. I didn't know if I'd get better. And so there was fear to it. But one of the most... Um, dominant feelings was I was failing in some way, that I was ashamed that I wasn't taking care of myself better, and I was ashamed that I wasn't a better patient, <laughs> that I, I, you know, I didn't like the the sense of irritation, I didn't like the, the impatience that would come up in me, the more tight I'd get with not feeling well over a sustained period of time, I didn't like the self who was sick. And I remember working with that Tammy at one point, you know, just realizing how I had added to the all the unpleasantness and pain of sickness a sense of bad self. And I got really dedicated because as soon as I really got it, um, you know, I wanted to, I, I, the way I described, kind of love myself into healing. So I really focused in on that, that feeling of shame about who I am, that, you know, here I'm this Dharma teacher and I can't even get sick and, and still stay connected, you know. And it was really powerful because I, I went right into the core of the shame, that, that old sense of failure, of not enough, of therefore not being lovable, because that's where it goes you know, that I'm going to be pushed out. Shame has this sense of something's really wrong and the fear of being rejected for it. And when I could get in touch with that depth of I'm unlovable and, and feel the suffering of that, just really feel the suffering of it, that's when there's a kind of a tenderness, like something larger felt tender towards the shameful place. And that was the beginning of really offering a kind of self-compassion that where I really allowed myself to feel bathed in kindness, like, oh, this hurts. And I found it's really important to recognize this hurts. It's like, ouch. Because if we can really get, you know, the sense of the kind of, it's like the landscape of this incarnation and how this being is hurting, there is a natural tenderness that arises. It's the beginning of self-compassion. And that self-compassion was incredibly full and incredibly healing. Like I felt really washed in, in loving presence and dissolving into loving presence until it just became so clear. I, my identity was not a sick person. My identity was not a sick person falling short. You know, my identity was not a sick person who would never get well. It was like those were the coverings. And I was resting in this loving presence that's really the truth of what I am. It deepened my trust tremendously to make that shift from the ashamed patient to that loving presence that was holding this life. Mm -hmm. So... It's very helpful. It sounds like just experientially, and I'm not trying to uh, say anything about the way the 
reality works or anything like that, but that experientially there was this hurt, this feeling of like this person, this being really is hurting right now. And then this other compassionate, loving, tender space that could hold the being that was hurting almost like two, like a big, a big loving space. And is that, is that kind of part of the yeah, breakthrough? I would go back to the ocean and the waves because they're not a separate two. It's like in recognizing the hurting, there was an enlarged sense of presence just in recognizing that I was resting more in the ocean that had the space and the tenderness to cradle the waves on the surface that were moving through. And so the shameful self was a part of my experience, but it didn't define me. And that's the shift. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I mentioned the meditation teacher who helps us deal with difficult emotions. You could also say the meditation teacher who teaches the RAIN practice. And, uh, you know, interestingly, in Trusting the Gold, there's uh, one chapter, there are more than 50 chapters in the book, short chapters, where you talk about the RAIN practice. And in the rest of the chapters, you offer other pointers and ways of working with difficult emotions. But I'm curious if you can just connect for a moment the RAIN practice with what you were just describing as this type of uh, self-compassion breakthrough. Yeah, yeah. So RAIN, it makes it sound like RAIN some sort of a very particular practice over there. And it's actually... I think of it as applied meditation. It's bringing a weave of mindfulness and compassion to wherever we're stuck. And in a way, all the other teachings I mentioned in, in the book could be seen as part of that process. But putting that aside, RAIN is an acronym. It was first, just for those who are not familiar, Michelle McDonald, who's a, a wonderful senior Buddhist meditation teacher, first coined the acronym back, I think, in the 80s or 90s. And um, so the way I teach RAIN is actually a shift from the original because I added in uh, self-compassion to it, which feels pretty basic. And the letters stand for R is recognize, A is allow, just letting be what's here. The I is investigate. And, and it's not a cognitive investigation. It's actually primarily somatic, where we investigate and become more embodied in contact with whatever's going on. And the uh, N is to nurture. And then after, after we've done that, after we've nurtured, there's actually another phase, which is after the rain. And it's an important one, because just as like after a real rain, it's after the rain that there's that kind of flourishing. It's in the moments after we've done the doing steps, you know, recognize, allow, investigate, nurture, that we can rest in and be the presence that's there, get to really know the who we are beyond the limiting sense of a self. So in, in the example I just gave you, um, I was doing rain. I was recognizing that I was feeling the overt feelings that first got to me was self-judgment and, and feeling really down, feeling really uh, grim and depressed. And then I'd allow that to be there. Just allow means you don't judge or try to fix or in any way try to avoid it. Just some moments of just let it be there, you know. And then the I, investigate, 
you know, I could, I ask myself sometimes, whenever there's some suffering, what am I believing? Because there's always a belief that in some way something's wrong. And I could sense that, you know, something's wrong with me. And then the investigate is to somatically feel that in the body, that squeeze that's kind of fearful in the chest and that kind of hollow in the belly of uh, just a sinking feeling. And the more I opened to it, and the more I sensed how many times in my life I had been contracted into that sense of something's wrong with me, that real, ouch, this hurts. Um, that's when I could feel a kind of, it's kind of like a moisturizing, like a tenderness start to open up. And then I could intentionally nurture the end of rain, which for me is often, um, you know, I put my hand on my heart or two hands on my heart and in some way call in love. And sometimes it's a sense of my own awake heart offering love to the vulnerable place. And sometimes I sense it's just through and beyond me, that loving presence that I'm calling on really the great heart of the universe, the bodhisattva of compassion, whatever words we want, but this field of um, love and light to kind of bathe me. And, and then I find it's coming from inside too. And then there's a natural kind of letting go into that. That's one of the what happens when there's a lot of compassion. There's kind of a dissolving of that solidity that's hurting so much. And then after the rain, as I mentioned, was this sense that this loving presence is more the truth than any narrative, any set of feelings that come and go. It's this. And that that's what builds the trust. Now, in Trusting the Gold, you share in these short chapters other, I guess I could call them um, reminders, or maybe I, I might call them interventions. <laughs> but that maybe that's just me. Like when you're suffering, here's a here's an intervention you can try. You don't exactly uh, offer it quite that way. You tell beautiful stories around these reminders. Here, here's one: when emotions are strong, my first step towards kindness is usually pausing, opening to the feelings, and telling myself this belongs. These two words, this belongs. And, you know, since I read that, I've been trying that uh, with different things. I thought, this is, re this really works. This is terrific. This belongs. So I'm, I'm curious how you, you came upon this phrase, this belongs, and how you use it. So I'm not sure how I came upon it. Um, the image again, if you take an ocean and waves that if we're the ocean, whatever waves are arising belong. They're just part of it. Um, they're not going to last forever in their current shape, but they're part of it. And by acknowledging the truth that they belong in that moment, there's more space that opens up. And I have seen over and over again, Tammy, how we, we fight things. I mean, that's our conditioning is to think this shouldn't be here. I don't want this to be here. And this is the exact uh, opposite of that. It, and it undoes our conditioning because when we're defending against the waves, we create more waves. But in the mo moment of this belongs, I'm actually using my hands underneath here, you know, there's like, oh, okay. So there's a space of a larger space of presence and there's room for these waves. They're, they're part of what's, just what's the truth, the actuality of the moment. 
And acknowledging truth is very powerful, even when it doesn't feel good. It's freeing. And that actually sets the way for us to do a deeper kind of presence and investigation and um, unpacking and untwisting. Okay, we'll throw out one uh, one more of these uh, sentences. It's uh, in a chapter called Meet Your Edge and Soften. And uh, you describe what it's like to say to yourself, sweetheart, just soften. And I wanted to hear more about that, this softening process. Yeah. Well, it's an embodiment practice. And um, if you imagine you have some ice and, and you put it in water, it melts and it becomes water. And so the same thing when there's like, when the body has those contractions of fear or shame or anger, whatever it is, um, and we actually invite softening, um, there's a natural letting go of the tightness. And by inviting it with kindness, just even a gesture of kindness, even remembering the word kindness, <laughs> ends up creating a space for softening. It just does. So what I'll do is um, feel that ice cubeness and in some way, you know, invite it to dissolve. Let's say, would you, do you feel ready to let go? And, and that really helps, just the inviting. And what I'll find is that the edges start getting wavery and there's a kind of releasing into the surrounds, into the kind of full field of awareness that's within and throughout. And, and presence actually gets stronger. It's so amazing that, you know, in the moments of softening, that the presence gets stronger and that allows for more softening. It's kind of a virtuous cycle. So the, the message, sweetheart, just soften, is kind of a reminder that this is possible. And, and in terms of how to use it, if you want to just practice with this, start with where it's easier. In other words, scan through the body and notice where there's tightness or holding, just physically. It doesn't have to be some big, deep, strong emotion, like it may be um, tension in the shoulders that you feel right now. And, and just sense if it wants to let go a little. Just invite it. Say, would you like to dissolve some? It's okay to let go. Are you ready to dissolve? And, and, and you start getting the knack of it, of inviting tightness to release a bit. And it builds over time. Because the body's intelligent. It knows how to let go. We just need to kind of remember it's even possible. Mm -hmm. Now, Tara, I, I, a couple times now I've said, the meditation teacher who helps us deal with difficult emotions, your area of specialty. And it, it seems to me that part of what's really hard for people, even after the turning, the recognizing, and the allowing, is just feeling the utter terribleness, the utter excruciating, burning terribleness, daggers, painfulness. You know, as you were saying, just soften. It's like, oh, I have to go into the body and I have to feel those places where I, you know, where I'm, you know, I don't know, getting iron rods stuck through my heart. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. We could get dramatic here, whatever it might yeah, be for yeah. people. How do you help people with that, with just that pure, that experiential intensity of the painful aspects of these difficult emotions? Sometimes they're too painful and it's not useful. So I just want to name that. When there's trauma and there's a sense of panic or terror and 
you know, the invitation's not, we'll dive right in and open it up and let it completely fill me, that it could be re-traumatizing when we're not resourced enough. So I want to name that these, these approaches uh, have to be gradual, have to be done intelligently. We are habituated to feeling like we can't handle things. So playing an edge, unless there's a lot of intense trauma, can actually be really revealing and give us confidence that, wow, I can handle whatever life brings. It's, the Tibetans call that the lion's roar. It's a, it's a confidence that's even deeper than happiness because we don't have to tense against what's around the corner so much. But come back to your question, how do we do that? How do we, when it feels really, really daggers and squeeze and just piercing and shattering, how do we open into it? And there are a few ways to support it. And one is through the whole process of RAIN or through any process of uh, working with difficult emotions, nurture all the way through. Even before you start, set that intention, you know, you know, may I feel held in love, may this, may there be some space for this, you know, set whatever kind message inwardly. And throughout, know that you can come back to whatever gestures of kindness, whatever remembrances of safety help, you know, it may be that you have a certain person in mind that you just sense is accompanying you or a spiritual figure. It may be that you sense the, the natural world of, of trees and streams is that, that you're part of that and that's that energy supporting you. In other words, bring in what helps to make room, to make it easier. And very specifically, when I get to investigate, I often put my hand on my heart, Tammy, because having my hand on my body, first of all, communicates a kind of tender presence, like there's, I'm accompanying myself and we need company. You know, when we're scared, we feel separate, we need company. So I'm accompanying myself. And also the putting a hand on the heart begins to quiet down the sympathetic nervous system, begins to calm us anyway. I'll do long, deep breathing with something that when there's real agitation, so that there's ways to modulate our, our um, agitation as part of this. And they're fair. We can modulate some and we can breathe and have our hand on our heart and still kind of lean in and lean in and invite the difficult places to express themselves and offer presence. And it's a, um, it's kind of an art that we gain more and more strength in as we practice, but it's doable. And I find that the more intense, as I mentioned earlier, the more I open to it, the more openness is there, the more I can trust the power of that openness and awareness. It's helpful. It's inspiring. Thank you, Tara. Okay, let's talk more about your mom. But in this context, which is you uh, have a, a chapter in Trusting the Gold, is this universe a friendly place? And you share a conversation that uh, you and your mom had after you gave a Dharma talk in which you were teaching on basic goodness, that that is the nature of our world, our universe. And your mom asked you some challenging questions. And I'm curious if you can share uh, some of that dialogue and talk to us, those people who say, is the universe a friendly place? Uh, I'm not sure 
you know, I believe in my own basic goodness inside. I believe in yours, but the whole, the whole universe itself, it might be more of a neutral place. It might not have a valence towards friendliness. I love this question. Um, so that's a quote, as you know, from Einstein. Uh, he says, this is the most basic question we need to ask ourselves. And he goes on to say, what happens if we believe that this world is intrinsically unfriendly? He says that we'll use all our technology and all of our resources to create bigger walls and weapons. And he says, if the other side, if we um, believe that it's friendly, we'll use all of our technology and all of our resources to deepen our understanding of this world we're part of. And so, in a way, just to say that how it happened with my mom, I was giving a talk on goodness, on really trusting the goal, because there's not a difference between trusting in the basic benevolence or goodness of this world and trusting the gold. And my mother was there. She was. She had moved down uh, to live with us, and so she she regularly would come to my Wednesday night talks, which was totally a blast because uh, you know we'd we'd drive back together and talk about the themes. And she was a philosophy major in college, and and she loved challenging me, <laughs> you know, even when she agreed with the sentiments. So on this one, oh my God, she really went to town. She said, um, you know, where's the basic goodness in racism or social injustice or capital punishment? She was avidly against capital punishment or humans violating each other and destroying the earth. You know, she, that was the kind of thing. And then she went on to say, you know, what makes goodness more basic than badness? You know, what makes love more basic than hate? All the kind of questions people ask. And she said, I'm voting for neutral at best. <laughs> and so I, I can imagine a lot of our listeners are, are right there with your mom. Totally, totally. And she was right. As, as you mentioned, we don't know. We just don't know. We don't know if what's more basic cognitively. And we don't know if love's more basic than our human capacity for hatred and cruelty. And in current times, I think that it's really hard because we're seeing such a spike in fear that we're seeing all the kind of limbic reactivity in the universe come out. So we don't know. There's no logical proof. And I, and I completely acknowledge that. And I shared with her why it was so meaningful to me to trust goodness. And, and I described, you know, my own experience, you know, my, just as you said, really, my own being, the moments of loving presence feel more true, more like home, you know, more a priori, you know, more basic, more whole than, than the changing waves. And I, sense that this life is no different from any other life that that it it's all from stardust you know it's all it's all life forms emerge from the same source and what we might play things out differently but we all have the same basic uh capacity and when i trust that that loving awareness is our essence that it's really that the universe springs forth from it in some way um it's helpful. And, and the way it's helpful is I actually, if I sit here and feel like that's the source, it allows me to live more from love, less defended, 
more open. It just helps me in how I live. And in fact, my main mantra, the main, if there's self-talk, the main thing I tell myself is trust the gold. You know, like if in this moment I say trust the gold, I get more sincere. You know, it's like I, just reminding myself of that brings me more embodied into feeling what I care about and living from that. So I'll just say one final thing that my mom, especially in in the last few decades of her life, she saw the best in people and brought out the best. She was really loving. She lived as if she trusted the gold, even if she may have challenged it, you know, cognitively. So I think it's a it's a it's a powerful view to take on. Like really, what happens if I trust the gold? Just to ask that and see what happens. It's I found it really transformational. Now let me check something out with you, Tara, because what I what I also hear you saying is if we come into trusting our own goodness inside, actually, if you take all the coverings off inside, underneath, that the essence of who I am is this pure, kind, generous, loving presence. That, and I know that. I know that that's what's underneath. That then there's a sort of logical extension because I'm part of the universe and that's what I am at my core that that's what the whole universe is. Like that's that's kind of what you're you're saying. Like we we're investigating ourselves, and that's like a node or a gateway or something into what the whole universe is. Is that part of what you're saying? That you're ex- experientially yeah. that's the path for you. Yeah, and I can describe it logically. Like, well, I'm made of the same stuff as everything else. I come from, you know, sensing that awareness is the source for this life form. It's going to be the source for all life forms, different ways of developing and expressing and getting stuck. And there's more. It's it's also that the more I am trusting that goodness here, the more I look at you and it's just so clear what's looking back at me. And the more I see it, you know, the sacredness in all life forms and in the trees and the the animals. I mean, it, it also, trusting the gold either comes, can bring out a lot of compassion. Like I think of factory farming and, you know, sensing all these beings are, you know, really arising out of the same sacred essence. And the horror of the violation. It's like, all. can't we value all of life? Because I really do value all of life. Doesn't mean I don't forget and get smaller and make hierarchies in my mind, I do. But there's a waking up out of that and seeing something that feels deeper and more true. And then uh, finally, Tara, this podcast is called Insights at the Edge. And uh, one of the questions I love to ask people is, what would you say is the edge, your edge, your personal growth edge, if you will, that what are you currently working with right now as a person? My edge is related to what I was uh, maybe just talking about. That in, in recent days in particular, Tammy, it's just, it's gotten to me in a more full-bodied way, the realness of how many current species 
may not make it, probably won't make it, how our earth body is threatened. I mean, it's very visceral. And, and then the suffering of the most vulnerable people. And then all the, um, the way fears are inflaming white supremacy um, that's caused centuries of violence and just keeps on going. Um, then I mentioned factory farming. It's like it's very visceral. And it's really, so it's really in me. And what happens when, when I am just that feeling it is this, this um, voice comes up, well, what else can I do? It, it's so bad. I need to do more. I mean, we're in such bad shape, you know. It's wrong not to do more. And then I have to reface the reality that I, I don't, my health won't last if I'm much more active than I currently am. So what happens, and this is the process that happens to me, is I get kind of grim, like, okay, things are bad and can't do much more. And then when I notice that grimness, that's kind of the view there, and I open underneath it, then I just, I weep, you know. It's like I, I really feel the sadness. I, I just love life and I feel the sadness of, of life suffering. So there's loving for the world. And then what that, what that enables, and this is all when I'm awake, is then I, my next activity, whatever way I'm trying to serve, I just bring more heart to it. So hopefully it serves better. <laughs> it's just from caring. Um, it's not about doing more. It's that Mother Teresa, you know, fabulous line of doing small things with great love. So, but that's my edge because as I mentioned it early on, I have a lot of conditioning to uh, always should do more. And now seems a time that the world needs a lot of caring and a lot of active engagement. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you'll uh, be glad to know, Tara, that there are a lot of us uh, with you doing our parts, uh, the listeners of uh, this program. And so you have a lot of um, accompaniment you know, each of us can just do our part. And that is the wisdom and the goodness of it, Tammy, is that it's not an individual self, it's beings holding hands that care. And, and that is a refuge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful conversation, Tara. Thank you so much. Yeah. I've been speaking with Tara Brock. We've been talking about her new book with Sounds True. It's called Trusting the Gold, Uncovering Your Natural Goodness. With Sounds True, Tara Brock has also partnered with Jack Cornfield to create the Awareness Training Institute. The Awareness Training Institute offers a seven-week online mindfulness training called The Power of Awareness. And then people who have taken The Power of Awareness, some may choose to go on and actually become trained as meditation teachers. Tara and Jack have partnered together with Sounds True to create the Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program, a two-year online training program. And you can learn more about the Awareness Training Institute at soundstrue.com. Thanks everyone for being with us. Thank you for uh, your part, metaphorically, if you will, holding hands here. Corny as it sounds, with Tara and I, all of us connected. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, 
hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.